Let Me Tell You a Story, podcast number 33. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. Call me Ishmael. It was the age of wisdom. Some years ago. It was the age of Never mind it is a how true long You don't know about me without you. Welcome to Let Me Tell You a Story with hosts Steve and Becky Lyle. Settle back into your seat, step onto your favorite fitness machine, or lace up your walking shoes, and enjoy stories from a variety of genres and authors. Hi, this is Steve. Hi, this is Becky. Welcome to Let Me Tell You a Story. We thought our previous episode was our final Christmas podcast for 2015, but we've come up with some more Christmas material to share with you. Steve will start us off with a couple chapters from Lisa Phillips' latest installment in her Witness Security or Witsec Town series. A Sanctuary Christmas Tale by Lisa Phillips Dr. Elliot Knoll strode from the room, snapping off the latex gloves as he went. He tossed them in the trash and took a minute in the hall to collect himself. He squeezed the bridge of his nose until he felt like he wasn't about to lose it, and then strode to the nurse's station. He plopped his iPad on the counter. Both nurses looked up. Daniel, barely 24 and scruffy, had an almost unbeatable pickup game, and Camille, 44 with hair and makeup like she was ready for a night at a club, sat staring at him. Neither said anything. Elliot tapped on the iPad screen, adding his notes to the chart and saving the updates. Margaret is cleaning up. Daniel nodded. The nurse's station had been decorated for Christmas, though evidently someone's toddler had chosen the decor. There was even mistletoe hanging above his head. He caught Camille's gaze. The corner of her mouth curled up, a promise for later, if he was interested. He was not. If Elaine hadn't thought he was worth sticking around for, why should any other woman want to? Daniel suppressed a grin. Humbug? Elliot shook his head. It's only the 19th of December. If you start using that word too early, it negates its effects. Daniel burst out laughing. Camille joined in, but Elliot wasn't convinced she understood what was funny. At least, she was a good nurse. Let me guess, Daniel went on. Dad was always gone, Christmas was never fun, so you basically ignore its existence every year, even though it's in your face. Okay, so that wasn't totally wrong, just slightly, but it didn't mean Elliot actually wanted to talk about it. Ish, he said. He motioned to the computer in front of Camille. So what's up next? Theirs wasn't a big city by any means, so... It was hit and miss as to whether he'd be working or waiting for someone else to walk in with an emergency. Elliot didn't like the anonymity of a million people crammed together, but neither was this a small town. It was a comfortable suburb, and Tuesday nights in the emergency room weren't exactly out of control. Elliot had done his residency in Indianapolis, so this was a nice change of pace. Camille clicked a mouse. Santa's got chest pains. Santa had probably stood outside Walmart all, all day ringing a bell, and now he wanted a warm place to sleep and a hot meal. If you'll take care of 24, I'll see Santa. Daniel got up. You got it, Hoss. Elliot shook his head at Daniel's antics, but his mind was still on the patient he'd just finished with, 
the one in 24. She was someone's mother, or would be when they came to claim her. There was already a nurse in there cleaning up, but Daniel would help things move more smoothly. Elliot didn't need to dwell on who the woman was or the injustice of an untimely death. He couldn't, or he would hesitate at the wrong moment. Empathy would swallow him whole if he let it. But not today. Elliot strode into the room, eyes on the iPad screen as he scanned the information the nurse had collected. I'm Dr. Noel. I'll be checking you out this fine Tuesday evening. When he'd ascertained from Camille's notes that this man wasn't drunk, high, or otherwise impaired, and was in fact suffering from chest pain, he looked up. The old man's eyes flickered above the full gray beard that wasn't fake at all. Elliot opened his mouth, but no words came out. The resemblance to St. Nicholas was remarkable, but this was December. They got a Santa in the ER nearly every day during this season because there were so many of them in schools, stores, or at fairs. Most were two steps up from homeless, but none were as skilled as Elliot's father at pulling off the jolly, bearded bringer of Christmas presents. A scratchy voice said, It really is you. Red suit minus the hat, which had been replaced by a knit cap, grubby white gloves, shined black boots, blue eyes. The man removed his hat. Elliot took a step back. If the old man was here, then it was true. She was dead. Elliot swallowed around the lump in his throat. Dad? He sounded like a little boy, not a 36-year-old doctor, for goodness sake. He cleared his throat. Dad. The Santa flashed a smile, gone almost as fast as it had come. Yeah, Elliot, it's me. Elliot wanted to drop the iPad and run as fast as he could through the front doors into the slush and snow and just keep going. The old man swallowed. I've been looking for you. Fourteen years. That was how long they'd been gone. Fourteen long years of barely any communication, none of which had been from his father personally. Elliot tossed the iPad on the bed beside his father's feet. So you're back. How was your life in the Mediterranean, Dad? You don't look all that tan for someone who's been living it up in sunny Europe all this time. The awkward realization on his father's face didn't satisfy Elliot the way it should have. It was all a lie, and his father was going to have to own up to it regardless of the way Elliot made him squirm, regardless of what Elliot knew and didn't know. Your mother and I weren't in Europe, El. Don't call me that. She'd called him that, his mother, Elaine. He wanted nothing to do with it now. The big man sighed, his Santa shoulders drooping. Elliot glanced away. I know you weren't in Europe living the high life. It had been a long time, but once his father had been jolly. The life Elliot had shared with him before he went to college and then medical school had been a happy one, at least until Elliot was cut off to make his own way, like a person could afford years of higher education without some kind of help. He'd made a decent dent in his student loans since he started working, but he knew his parents could have afforded it. But no, 
His father had decided that Elliot needed a lesson in financial independence when the only thing he'd learned was how to resent his father's willingness to help anyone in need, except his own son. Elliot straightened his shoulders. He'd have to give bad news to a loved one plenty of times, so he knew what it felt like. Still, they needed to say this out loud so that his dad could leave again. Elliot sucked in a breath of air. She's gone? The cancer got her? Santa blinked. How did you? She wrote to me. What? The old man looked almost angry. At least once a month, every month, for the past 14 years, because she cared about keeping in touch with me. All the bitterness in him now laced itself into his voice like poison in a water supply. Mom told me about her cancer. I assume, since her letters have stopped, that she passed. I told her I would find you and tell you what happened, tell you that she loved you. I know my mother loved me. She said it in every letter, but even if she hadn't, I still knew. His stomach felt like it was on spin cycle. He took a step back. You needn't have come. I was aware of what was happening. She even sent me copies of her chart. I could have surmised the outcome on my own. I had no idea. Pain was written on the old man's face. I'm sorry you lost her. After all, his dad had spent every day with his wife. Elliot couldn't imagine how hard it was to live without her now. But it's time for you to leave. He glanced at the door. Why hadn't an armed guard been stationed outside? You probably should get back to witness protection. His father's head jerked. You knew? Mom told me in her letters. Someone named Grant advised her on what she could and couldn't say. I don't know what happened or where they put you, apart from the USO address I sent the letters to. I assume they were forwarded on somewhere, but that's mute now. She's gone, so I have no more reason to write. Elliot opened the door. If you're in danger, you shouldn't hang around here. His father shook his head. I've kept a low profile, and I've been checking in. The threat seemed manageable. Besides, I promised your mother I'd find you. And now you have. Goodbye, Dad. Elliot braced himself. Merry Christmas. His father's eyes flashed. He opened his mouth. Someone screamed. Camille? A thud. Shut the door. His father's words were an angry whisper. Why? Who are they? They must have found me. Elliot shut the door and winced. That had been loud, maybe too loud. There were men after his father in his clinic. There had been altercations with patients and relatives before, but this was a first. I'm guessing you should have asked for an armed guard. We have to get out of here. We do, Elliot turned to his father, still barely able to believe the old man was here. There was so much he wanted to say to him, though a swift right hook would have been a whole lot faster and equally as effective. Outside their door, the sound of footsteps on the tile floor drew closer. Elliot grabbed his dad's elbow and rushed to the bathroom, a Jack and Jill washroom adjoining the two exam rooms. They continued through, emerging in the empty one next door. Good, son, he nodded toward the wall. We'll wait until they go and then make a break for it down the hall. Elliot cracked the door and looked out into the hallway. An armed gunman stood at the end of the hall. Long, black, wool coat, shaved hair, dark stubble. But the gun didn't look normal. 
Camille's body was sprawled in the middle of the floor, blood puddling around her from a gash on her forehead, a dart sticking out of her back. Elliot had to get to her. I found them. The man's voice was low and ruthless. Elliot peered around the door to see the man's back. Consider it done. The man moved his coat aside to stick the tranquilizer gun in the back of his pants and then retrieved a different weapon, a real gun. The man spun and fired right at Elliot. Elliot didn't move fast enough. His arm was thrown back as a slash of fire laced like a whip across the flesh of his shoulder. He stumbled backward. His dad kicked the door shut, and Elliot staggered to the floor. His dad grabbed a blanket from the bed and tossed it at him. Put pressure on. You think I don't know that? I have a medical degree. His father grabbed a chair and wedged it under the door handle. It wouldn't do much against bullets. Elliot stood and let the blanket fall to the floor. He shook the pillow out of its case and wrapped the thin cloth tight around his arm. The wound smarted but didn't look deep. Elliot stuck his mouth under the tap in the tiny sink and washed the bile back down. He looked back at his father. They know where we are. Don't suppose you have a phone, do you? His dad shifted but didn't answer. We need to call 911. None of the rooms had phones. Not since one had been used to make international calls and then the patient had refused to pay on the grounds the charges weren't explained to him up front. Like the clinic had the money to pay for them. The door handle jiggled. Elliot listened. Where were the people down the hall? Why hadn't anyone called security or the police? It was late and a slow night. Where was Daniel or Margaret? Elliot blew out a breath. Okay, you're here, Lord. So how about it? Apparently, I only ask you for help when it's serious. I should have prayed earlier, but maybe we can talk about that later. How about right now you take care of these guys about to kill me and my father? A wash of emotions rolled through him, but there was no time. His father didn't need to know that every significant event of Elliot's life, good and bad, had happened because of his father's presence. Since the last time he'd seen his dad, Elliot's life had been blessedly uneventful. Until today. So, no phone? Elliot's was in his locker, and the old man's silence wasn't promising. The man outside banged on the door. Someone else banged on the bathroom door from inside. A male voice yelled, and another man answered, but Elliot couldn't make out what they were saying. Great. They were surrounded. Elliot looked around. There was a window, but it didn't open. Could he throw a chair through it? Elliot winced, just thinking about broken glass cuts. But if it meant they didn't get shot... He turned back to his father. Who are these men? Why did they come here? The old man backed away from the doors and came to stand in front of Elliot's shoulder, blocking his injury from whoever might come in the room. Elliot glanced down at the Santa suit. Did he think this was a good disguise? Dad, answer the question. But he just adjusted his stance and muttered, Angry elves. Excuse me? He sighed. Figured they'd find me when I found you. Yeah, so he called it. Big deal. Thinks he's the smartest man on the planet, but I made a promise to your mother that I'd find you, and I have. And now people are hurt because of it. You needed to know the cancer got her. I didn't think there would be any danger. A sheen of tears glinted in his father's eyes, 
until they blinked and it was gone. I would have figured it out when the letter stopped. You didn't need to leave witness protection when you were in danger. His dad turned slowly, a look on his face like nothing Elliot had ever seen. You think this is my fault? I'm not playing the blame game. His dad shrugged, but didn't take his hands from his pockets. Sure, son. Why are you so calm? In two minutes, they're going to shoot their way in here and kill us. I'm working on that. Elliot looked around the room. You have a plan to get out of here? Great, I'm all ears. I've never understood that expression. I mean, crack. His body jolted, and behind him, Elliot did the same. Why wasn't his dad more scared? Elliot was about to jump out the window. There were only minutes, and they would be dead. Was his dad that eager to go be with his mom? That couldn't be healthy, but there was no time to talk it through. Two shots popped off, muffled through the door. Then a single shot and a thud. Three knocks on the door. Harold? Elliot stared while his father removed the chair from under the door handle. Dad? A man walked in. Tall, dark blonde hair and a muscled build. But not showy. It wasn't about appearance. It was about having the necessary strength. Jeans and a t-shirt, an open jacket, no gloves or coat, though his cheeks and nose did look a little pink from the brisk wind, and yet Elliot got the impression the man was lethal. This man might know his father's name, but clearly it was a trap. He had killer written all over him. His dad cracked a wide smile. Benny, he held his arms out. You're late. I'm never late, the man snorted though he still looked affronted about Elliot's dad's questioning his timing. A Santa costume? That was the best you could come up with? He leaned in for a quick hug. I was jonesing to wear the old thing again. Dad moved back and patted his stomach. We nearly died, Elliot sputtered. Where are those men? Did you kill them? And you two are standing here having a grand reunion. What is going on? And where is a phone? I'm going to dial 911. Dad pulled a phone from his pocket. You had one the whole time? The man named Benny held out a hand before Elliot could grab the phone. No, don't call from that. I don't want you tied to this, Harold. An unregistered phone will only add questions. Elliot brushed past them both, found a dead gunman, and rummaged in his pockets for a phone. Bingo, the dead man moaned. Elliot nearly dropped the cell phone. He's alive. He glanced over at his dad and the friend. You didn't kill him. I didn't intend to. They were the ones firing. Elliot shook his head. Who was this guy? The gunman's phone had a passcode, but emergency calling didn't require one. Elliot dialed for help, glancing back to where Camille still lay unconscious. He needed to go check on her. Make sure. I already checked. She'll be fine. Elliot turned to see his father's friend eyeing him. You really want the police here? His dad regarded the man quietly. Benny, was that actually his name? Shifted his attention back to the old man and answered, We'll be long gone. They'll never know you or I were here. Elliot listened to the phone ring. You want me to lie to the police and cover for you? Benny walked over. Give me the phone, Elliot. 911, what is the nature of your emergency?
Before he could speak, the phone was pulled from his hands. Elliot's father slapped his hand over Elliot's mouth so he couldn't speak or barely breathe. He reached up with both hands, but the movement shot pain up his arm until his head spun. Benny wiped the phone on his shirt and set it down using the shirt to hold it. Okay, let's go. He kept his voice low. Elliot tried again to remove his dad's hands from his mouth. What about witness statements? His dad whispered. Exactly, that was what Elliot wanted to know. They can't know we were here, Harold. Despite their exemplary service, this is outside the purview of local police. He leaned closer and grinned. This one's mine. Elliot finally managed to shove his dad's hand away. He looked between his father. Nothing like the man he'd known years ago. And the other man, and said, Who are you people? Wow, now we all want to know what happens next. For those of you with e-readers, A Sanctuary Christmas Tale is available on Kindle and on Kindle Unlimited right now, but it's not yet in print format. Rayanne Norell has written a story about her extreme kayaker son, Dave Norell, in a book titled Broke, Hungry, and Happy. Isaiah Silkwood reads an excerpt for us today. Broke, Hungry, and Happy, The Life of Extreme Kayaker, Dave Norell. Written by Rayanne Norell. Narrated by Isaiah T. Silkwood and Rayanne Norell. Chapter 1. Bear Creek, June 2003. Adrenaline pounded through my veins, almost as loudly as the roar of the 70-foot, two-tiered waterfall in front of me. I visualized my line. Splashing water on my face a couple of times, I positioned my yellow piranha kayak, put the paddle blade in the water, and pushed off the brink. Punching the entrance hole placed me right where I wanted to be, coming off the lip. When I connected with the shelf, my boat skipped forward, defying the laws of physics. I landed the first 25-foot drop flat before flailing off the 45 like a feather. Landing tail first after the second drop, the bow of my boat came down so hard that I slammed into the top of my kayak, barely registering the pain. I was ecstatic. I tapped the top of my yellow helmet two times, signifying to my friends on the bank of the river that I was okay. My friend Joe yelled, Yeah, Dave! Yeah, Dave! It was June 2nd, 2003. And Dan Menton, Joe Carberry, Chad Randall, Corey Dawes, and I left Boise at 6 that morning. Bear Creek runs into Wild Horse River near Cambridge, Idaho. We ran part of the river with smaller drops first, and some great bouldery creaking. Then we came upon this massive drop that I knew I just had to attempt. During scouting, we all agreed that there was no telling what the transition would do. I thought I could get a stroke and make the move, so I was stoked to run it. The others opted not to. Joe set up the video camera from the top, and Dan took the footage from below. Everybody made the difficult portage above a rocky landing, passing their boats as a team. It was an awesome, bright, sunny day, and I was happy to be alive, doing my favorite thing in life. But my story starts 24 years earlier. Chapter 23. Costa Rica. On December 8th, we had the most spectacular run I'd ever done in my life up to that point. The put-in on Rio Toro 
for this Class 5 gorge was at a beautiful place just below a hydroelectric dam. Every 50 to 100 meters, big waterfalls poured into a deep canyon composed of bright red river rock. The water was blue, contrasted by the green lush forest. I ended up using some of the footage of this section of the trip later in my second video, The Revolution 2, Broke, Hungry, and Happy. In the middle of the run was Recreo Verde, a hot springs resort with food and a bar. It was simply amazing. Kicking back in the natural hot springs, relaxing and talking with fellow kayakers Karen Roy, Aaron Napoleon, Justin Japs, and Cameron Ray really topped off the day. Ironically, after such a great run in the midst of all the beautiful scenery, the takeout was disgusting. It was a pork factory and pig farm with an almost unbearable stench, and we were serenaded with a cacophony of pigs screaming their last screams. The next day we did a quick run on the Pasqua again. It had rained hard throughout the previous night, continuing into the next day. That afternoon the local creek flash flooded. It was crazy to see massive amounts of water and debris crashing down into the town. Houses started to wash away from the banks. I was very disappointed that I had left my video camera in the shuttle vehicle. However, the next day I got some good footage of the aftermath of the torrential rains. We went to the best run in Costa Rica, the Peralta section of the Ravantazon River. The amount of water seemed perfect, but due to the recent flash floods, the group was concerned the water level might jump up while we were in the canyon so we decided not to run it. Returning Tuesday, it was a little lower than the previous day, but still a good level. Not too challenging and a lot of fun. The play was incredible. True to its meaning, agitated, the waves were huge, super fast, and bouncy. As we went down the river, we found that every significant little creek pouring in had flooded the day before like the river itself, which caused the river to be dirty brown with tons of sediment. The last couple of miles had huge rapids, I racked up some sweet eye candy for my video. December 13th started off with a tasty bowl of blackberries and mango and milk, along with an avocado sandwich, my usual breakfast. Chad, Aaron, Justin, Brett, Cameron, Mario, and I headed out for the Peralta section again. Though a meter high that day, it should have still been a good level, but somehow the play wasn't quite as good. On one rapid, several of us were boating Blue Angel style, one right after another. The wave was pretty big, so it was easy to disappear from sight. One of the boaters accidentally slammed into me when I started surfing the wave. His paddle broke off on my mouth, cutting my lower lip. Everyone eddied out to a sandy beach on river left. Justin and Aaron helped me over to the bank. Knowing that carnage goes over well in kayak videos, and wanting to document everything on this adventure, I asked the guys if they'd film the damage with my video camera. Although woozy, I didn't yet realize how bad my injury was. I asked them to show me my camera monitor after they had filmed me. They said, no, you don't want to do that. They knew it was not a pretty sight. I grabbed the camera anyway. When I saw my lower lip hanging in two pieces with the jawbone exposed, I almost lost it. I didn't go into shock, but I began to shake and felt as if I was going to pass out. My friends wisely kept me in my wetsuit to try to help me stay warmer. We were worried about infection as the river was very dirty from the recent flooding. Chad took a gauze cloth from our little first aid kit and used the water from our canteens to clean my lip as best he could. My lip throbbed and I grimaced from the pain. They gave me two pain pills that were in the kit. Luckily, we had the local tough guy, Mario, with us. He turned out to be the biggest asset we could have had. 
Mario, Chad, and Aaron came up with a game plan to get me out of there. Fortunately, we were on the correct side of the river to access roads, though we worried that bridges and roads might have been washed out by the recent floods. We were in a drainage and started up the channel looking for help. Chad, Aaron, and Mario took turns holding me up so I could walk. They wanted me to walk so I would stay awake. They kept asking me if I was warm enough. The rest of the group waited with our boats by the river. The sugarcane reeds stood dense and tall. It felt like we were in a corn maze. We couldn't really see ahead, so Mario used the paddle like a machete and laid the cane down as we walked. We later found out that he used to work in a coffee field and was accustomed to trudging through the jungle with snakes and other creatures. Evidently, this area had one of the highest concentrations of venomous snakes in the world, about 4,000 per hectare. I tried to remain calm. We finally came upon a farmer in the wet fields with waist-high waders on. He asked if we had seen any snakes. He seemed surprised when we said no. He informed us that he had seen 20 snakes in the last couple of hours. He wore the waders to protect himself from the fur de lance, a deadly black snake. Often snakes such as rattlesnakes are defensive and will only attack if feeling threatened. The fur de lance, on the other hand, is aggressive and will attack even though unprovoked. It can be from 6 to 8 feet long. We only wore booties and shorts, so hearing about the prevalence and lethality of these snakes did not inspire confidence. We told the man our situation and asked if he could drive us to the nearest town. He said that he didn't have a truck and that all the bridges were washed out. We pleaded with him anyway. Not knowing if he was being 100% straightforward with us, Chad said, Show him your lip, David. When I showed him my injury, the farmer changed his tune and said, Conozco a alguien que podría tener un camión. Even in my current condition, I understood that the Tico said he knew someone who had a truck, and I was relieved. He took us about 300 yards away to a gated complex of buildings. The guarded entryway was made of stone pillars, and the driveway was paved. It seemed strange to find this large complex out in the middle of nowhere. We weren't sure what it was. After repeating our story about needing a ride to town, the guard told us in Spanish that it would take a couple of days to get to town. Again, I showed him my lip. He said he would get his boss. A man impeccably dressed in a business suit came out to speak to us. He was bilingual with excellent English. He offered to drive me to some locals who had a dirt bike and could get me into town despite the washed out roads. By then it was getting late, and Chad, Aaron, and Mario had to get back to the rest of the group to boat the remaining 10 miles before dark. They asked me if I was okay being left alone. I was a bit nervous about being out there, not knowing a thing about who these men were, but I realized I needed to get to a hospital soon. I said, I'll be fine, and thanked them for all their help. I was relieved to finally be on my way to Turrialba. I was transported a short distance by truck when we came to a washed-out bridge. The driver took me to the Tico with a dirt bike. I was a little sketched about riding on the back of a dirt bike with a stranger in the middle of Costa Rica but no matter how cold, nervous, and shaky I felt, I knew I needed medical attention. The whole ordeal probably took about two and a half hours. I later learned from Chad that they ran through their sugarcane trail as fast as they could, adrenaline pounding. Every time Chad heard a sugarcane snap, he jumped, thinking it was the dreaded Ferdinand snake. They were happy to get back in their boats and get out of there. My driver took me to the hospital emergency room and was kind enough to wait with me until I got help which I greatly appreciated. At the hospital, nobody spoke English. I had no money or ID with me. They took down my name and birth date. 
After a brief wait, I was taken into a very cold room. I shivered because I was still wet. Although my Spanish was okay by this time, it was difficult to communicate. At one point, they sent in a lady who spoke a bit of English. She told me I had to understand Spanish and asked about allergies. I kept saying, El Rio es muy sucio, meaning the river is very dirty, because I was worried about infection. Finally, they were ready to sew my lip back together. I reclined on the bed and decided the best thing would be to close my eyes during the procedure. The shots were a bit painful, but totally numbed my lips. Fortunately, next they put a cloth over my eyes that was laced with a sedative of some sort. I was able to relax by taking in deep breaths of the medicated cloth. The stitching process took about 30 minutes, and it seemed to go by quickly. I was fairly nervous, but tried to stay calm because I knew it would be better that way. I kept laughing to myself every so often. I didn't understand a word the surgeon said. I was in a foreign country, in a cold room, in my wet gear. It was wild. Dangerous Dave Norell's example of living life to the fullest continues to provide inspiration even after his death in a triathlon at the age of 24. From the perspective of a mother who has walked the journey from grief to healing, the book celebrates David's life, following his adventures from Idaho to British Columbia, Costa Rica, the Philippines, and throughout the U.S. The hard copy version of Broke, Hungry, and Happy, The Life of Extreme Kayaker Dave Norell may be purchased at the author's website, www brokehungryandhappy.com, Amazon, Rediscovered Books Boise, and Idaho River Sports Boise. The e-version of the book may be purchased at Amazon. The audiobook may be purchased at Amazon ACX, Audible, and iTunes. Thanks, Rayanne and Isaiah. Check out Rayanne's website, BrokeHungryAndHappy.com for more information about her book. Now, back to Christmas. Pauline Sheehan Graves' story about her sister was published several years ago, but it still warms the heart. Pauline titled it, Jennifer's Best Christmas. Teddy bears and dolls sat regally at our pretend tea party. Three sisters scooped mud onto saucers and topped it with pretend birthday candles. Lovingly, we offered our guests tea with sugar or cream and blotted their furry and plastic chins. As we sisters became adults, our lives got more serious. Now, the highs and lows of chemotherapy ruled Jennifer's health. She was hospitalized when a low came at Christmas time. We followed her steadfast belief as she prayed for a miracle. For her faith exceeded ours. We prayed for her recovery and particularly her discharge before Christmas. And our churches and Bible study groups prayed with us. We didn't talk about what we were thinking, that this might be her last Christmas with us. Every day we telephoned for a report on her white cell count. Every day it was worse. The day of Christmas Eve we expected a miracle, but instead her physician said, Jennifer, you came in at death's door, and you can't go home yet. The telephone lines relayed the news, and the phones kept ringing as we sisters planned for her hospital-based Christmas. An evergreen tree was brought in. Lights and garlands were hung in the window. And a potted plant was decorated. Grandma Norland's wooden tea tray with its slanted edge made a gilded frame for the inlaid old-fashioned rose bouquet under glass.
And Exella's gold-rimmed china teacup and saucer with miniature pink roses match Grandma Stephen's teacup and saucer with one large red rosebud. And the third cup and saucer was decorated with a splashy bouquet. As the sun slipped across the starlit silent night, three sisters celebrated Christmas Eve with real tea from Heritage China. Jennifer's family presented her with a card. Inside a tiny fuzzy red stocking, she leafed out ten $100 bills. As they lined up for hugs, Jennifer laughed and said, This is my best Christmas ever. Jennifer wrote her prayer in her miracle book. It is hard to believe that I have been in the hospital twice and came out fine. When I went in, I was in dangerous health, but neither time did I get infections, although the family had flu and colds. Thank you, Lord, for keeping the unhealthy germs away. What a wonderful surprise for my family. How they ever collected a thousand dollars, I'll never know. How precious was the love from each one to me. How can one grasp all that love, prayer, and help? Even though I was in the hospital for ten days, it was the most wonderful Christmas I've ever had. People came to sing, pray, and be blessed by her. Flowers, embroidered satin pillows, pillowcases, and cards came. House cleaning services or paycheck and food came. Jennifer said, Jesus hasn't healed me yet, but he's performing miracles, for he has provided me with all my needs and has brought so many people to comfort me. Early in the spring, God healed Jennifer completely, curing her of paralysis, pain, and blindness. She didn't need any more chemotherapy, for her cancer was conquered, and she received immunity from every other disease. 1 Corinthians 2, 9 and 13 says, No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love Him. But God has revealed it to us by His Spirit. This is what we speak, not in words taught to us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit, expressing spiritual truths in spiritual words. Through Jesus' eyes, we learn that rough is refined, low is high, and worst is best. Through Jennifer's faith, we learn to ask, recognize, and thank God for His miracles. Jennifer taught us to take one day at a time. Now, one day at a time, we are writing more entries in Jennifer's book. We expect to celebrate this Christmas with four new babies in our family, each arrival a miracle. More glorious than children could imagine and more miraculous than our faith could believe, Jesus said He would prepare a place for us. His birthday party, the highest tea, will be decorated with gems, crystals, quartz, onyx, and pearls of luminescence, emerald, carmine, topaz, sapphire, and azure. The street of the city will be purer than 14 karat gold. Fruit trees will line the crystal clear river surrounding the mansion with year-round lusciousness. This Christmas Eve, the glory of God glows through the mansion where Jennifer will be celebrating Jesus' birthday party. Even though heaven is far away for a sister to live, we respect Jennifer's holy invitation. And through childlike faith, we believe this is Jennifer's best Christmas ever.
According to online sources, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow composed the words to I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day on December 25, 1864. The carol was originally a poem titled Christmas Bells that contains seven stanzas. The two stanzas that referenced the American Civil War were omitted in the remaining five stanzas, slightly rearranged in 1872 by John Baptiste Calkin to create the carol I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day. Calkin also provided the tune. When Longfellow penned the words to his poem, America was still months away from Lee's surrender to Grant on April 9, 1865. His poem reflected the years of the war's despair, but ended with a confident hope of triumphant peace. The poem also flows from tragedies in Longfellow's life, the death of his wife Fanny in a fire, and the crippling injury of his son Charles from war wounds. Here are all seven verses of Longfellow's Christmas Bells. I heard the bells on Christmas Day their old familiar carols play, and wild and sweet the words repeat of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And thought how, as the day had come, the belfries of all Christendom had rolled along the unbroken song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Till ringing, singing on its way, the world revolved from night to day, a voice, a chime, a chant sublime of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Then from each black, accursed mouth, the cannon thundered in the south, and with the sound the carols drowned of peace on earth, goodwill to men. It was as if an earthquake rent the hearthstones of a continent and made forlorn the households born of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And in despair I bowed my head, there is no peace on earth, I said, for hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Then pealed the bells more loud and deep, God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail, with peace on earth, goodwill to men. That's going to take us out. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for listening. Happy reading and Merry Christmas. <laughs> Thanks for listening. You can find more of Becky Lyles under the pen name Rebecca Carey Lyles. Her most recent novels, Winds of Wyoming and Winds of Freedom, have both won awards and made the Amazon bestselling list. Steve, well, he just really needs to get his stuff published. If you have comments or suggestions, send them to story at beckyliles.com. Tune in next week for more tall tales and fun fables at Let Me Tell You a Story.